come and listen to my story about a man named Daniel Plainview. He was a lonely, silver-minded dude. One day he was digging, trying not to get screwed, when up from the ground came a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. We watch There Will Be Blood. We are the film fellas. We watch random movies that you love, hate, or have never heard of, and then we talk about them. I'm Greg, and the first one to make a milkshake joke buys the first round. I'm Nick, and I'm not good at hopscotch. I'm Caleb, and my favorite soccer slash football player is the absolute legend himself, Sipiwe Shabalala. I'm Robbie, and I don't like wildfires. Right. Let's get into it! Like I said, we are the film fellas. This week we watched There Will Be Blood, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson from 2007, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano, based loosely on the Upton Sinclair book, with an exclamation point. (laughs) This week was my pick. I had heard about this movie and heard that it was really good, and I finally ended up watching it. And I was like, this is great. I should have the fellas watch this. So let's start off this episode with our classic one-sentence summaries. My one-sentence summary is, an oil man and a huckster preacher have a 16-year-long dick-measuring contest. (laughs) Essentially. Yep. Nick. My one-sentence summary is, it looks like a horror movie, but it's not. Well, my one-sentence summary is, uh, all right, it's been two and a half hours. Where's the blood? Give me the blood, Thomas Anderson. I'm ready for the blood. Very nice. I've been working on that all day. <laughs> Greed and hypocrisy. Upton Sinclair is the American West. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We're all right on the money today. Yeah, good for us. Good hey. money. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> so now we're going to get into our synopsis of the plot where we are going to go one by one and talk about it. And we're going to do a really poor job because fuck it. We're not doing it in detail. We're doing it for funsies. Yes, sir. Now listen, all of you at home. There are going to be spoilers ahead. We open on an empty field while ominous music plays, before cutting to the underground where we see a man draped in shadow swinging a pickaxe at a wall. This is Daniel Plainview. He's digging for silver. And uh, he's, he's doing okay. He finds a little bit of silver. And he's like, oh, I'm going to blow the wall out. And I'm going to get all this silver. So he puts in some dynamite and he cheeses it out of there and he blows it up. And then he climbs down to go get the silver. One of the rungs on his ladder snaps and he smashes in the bottom of his mine. And he eventually drags himself out and goes and he, he gets the place where you sell your silver and he gets it and he gets a couple more men. And then he gets a, a bigger plot and he finds oil and he's like, oil. Now that's the name of the game, fellas. So he ends up making a oil pump, if that's what it's called. And he has all his men. He's down in the pit with another guy. They're pumping the oil. And all of a sudden, a thing comes loose up top. And the giant oil piston comes down and smacks one of the dudes in the head, totally destroying him in the oil. And that guy was a father, and he kept his baby with all the oil. It was sort of weird and definitely not hygienic. So then Daniel decides to take that baby and raise him as his own. And he basically uses him as a little idol, not idol, more like a mascot for his oil company. And then he goes and tries to sell his new plots of oil. Fellas. Some years go by and Daniel Plainview becomes a very successful, very powerful and rich oil baron. I believe that's what you call them people. 
and he uses his adopted son, H.W., as a sweet face to swindle people out of their land. One day, he's greeted by a unusual individual who has some skeptic information, perhaps about some oil in California. This man's name is Paul, and Paul and Daniel and Daniel's assistant Fletcher discuss the, the details. Eventually, Daniel convinces Paul to, to give him the location. Then Daniel and H.W. go to the homestead and find a very accommodating young family where Daniel and H.W. take the weekend to, to do some hunting. While they're hunting for birds or whatever, they also find some oil. And Daniel goes to the father of the house to see what can be done about buying this land. Fellas. So as Daniel sits at the table with the father and the other brother, Eli, who is Paul's twin, he starts suggesting that he'd like to buy the property, but he was going to do it for quail money. So he was going to give it to him for maybe $3,600, which is ridiculously cheap for a place of oil, but is an okay price for land. Eli speaks up and goes, no, we want $10,000 for me and my church, and then we'll give you the property, and we can just wait for it as a bonus. And Daniel goes, we're not going to do that. And they work it out to about 5000 owed. So he'll buy the property and all the land that it's on, and in return, he'll give $5,000 to the Church of the Third Revelation, which is a special church that Eli is in charge of. Then afterward, uh, the little boy starts getting along with the youngest girl in the family, Mary, and he starts wondering why Mary is being forced into this weird uh, religious practices. She gets beaten all the time, and things aren't all great at the Sunday Ranch. Fellas. So Daniel calls up all his buddies and he's like, hey, get over here. We are sitting on an ocean of oil. So everybody comes in on the train and they build up this new derrick. And they're like, all right, we're going to start pumping soon. And Eli comes and he's like, I would like to do a little blessing. You know, I'm the, the religious leader of the town. I would like to do a little blessing on the derrick before you start pumping. And he's like, that'll be fine. When would you like to do it? He's like, let's do four o'clock tomorrow. And he's like, four o'clock would be fine. So they have the big meeting where they gather all the town and they're going to turn on the oil derrick for the first time so it can start pumping. And uh, Daniel does his own little blessing and gives the speech, the, the introduction that he was going to give to Eli, that Eli wanted, to his sister Mary. And then he's like, H.W., go turn on the, the oil derrick and starts pumping and everything's great. They have a little picnic and fellas. So that puts uh, Eli in a pretty unhappy state, as it would be. But everything's going smoothly. They're making a bunch of money. They're on the oil. And all of a sudden, one day, HW's like, you know what? I want to go look at the oil pump from the top view. So he goes and climbs up on a thing and is looking at the pump, just sort of zoning out like, hmm, that's a pretty cool pump you got there. And to his surprise and everyone else, they hit some sort of gas leak, which made the pressure of the oil just go insane and do that classic like oil coming out like, woo, we struck it, but in a very bad way. And this time, H.W. gets his ears blown out because of the pressure and the very loud noise, and he becomes deaf. And there's a very dramatic scene where Daniel's like, H.W., where are you? And he goes and grabs him, but he doesn't actually say anything because it's like dramatic music, but that's what he's saying because, you know, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. He grabs H.W., he brings him back, and he's like, oh, no, my boy's deaf. And he thinks of it as a very bad thing instead of it's sort of like a thing he has to live with now. Fellas. So Daniel is pretty... Uh distraught by this news not only that his adopted son is deaf and that's that's a whole ordeal but also it's bad for business now that his son is essentially useless to daniel but his non-prayers 
are shortly answered when a mysterious man named Henry comes into the picture, claiming to be Daniel's long-lost brother from another mother, I think? Yeah. And so Daniel thinks, ah, well, problem solved. Now I just will take Henry, and now we'll, I'll still be able to sell my business as a, as a family business. You know, me and my brother going around just doing business where we can. And he sends H.W. off to boarding school or whatever. Dangle doesn't, doesn't care anymore. And shortly after, there are some folks from Union Oil. Standard Oil. Oh, is it Standard? There's some folks from Standard Oil who would like to buy Daniel's land because Daniel doesn't want to sell his oil via the, the railroads because that's too expensive. He wants to be able to make a pipeline through all the way through to the ocean and be able to... With Union Oil. Yes, with Union Oil. But Daniel wants to pipe his oil all the way to the ocean through Union Oil, which is much cheaper. But the problem is that Daniel didn't secure the land of this man named Bandy, who is the last lot that he needs to be able to make his pipeline to get his oil to the ocean, fellas. So... Now his son is gone because he had set that fire, which made him or made his son go away. And everybody knows that his son is deaf. So they're sitting there at the bargaining table and he's talking with Standard Oil and he's not really happy about it. And then as sort of just normal negotiating small talk, the representatives tells him about how, well, what you can do once you get your money is you can just... Uh, spend time with your son and everything will be fine. And Daniel does not take this well. In fact, he freaks out, thinks of the slight, threatens the man with murder and then leaves and decides, fine, I'm just going to go through Union Oil anyway and everything will be fine that way. And I'll just go for, you know, I'll try and find a way to get around this guy's land. So to relax, because he doesn't have his son, he puts all his hopes and dreams into Henry, his half-brother that wandered in out of the desert and said that I'm your half-brother. And surprise, surprise, he is not. He was a cellmate of, the, uh, of his actual half-brother, who did exist, and uh, listened to him tell him stories about his life and his past. And he just stole that and uh, wanted to have a family. And he's like, hey, but you're my friend. It's all okay. And Daniel doesn't take it well, and Daniel ends up murdering the man. As he's burying him next to a lake, Bandy, the man who owns the land, comes up to him and goes, hey, I know what you did, and I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to give you that land, and all you need to do is go down to the third Revelation church, and then you can become baptized, and I'll give you all the land you need. And so, of course, the guy's like, okay, you know, it's not really going to change anything of my actual beliefs. Sure, I'll do it so this guy will give me his land. And he goes down and gets ready to get baptized, and Eli's baptizing him and decides that he's going to humiliate him in front of everybody because he'd been beat up by him earlier and shoved down into the oil. So now he's being humiliated in the water. So they storm out and fellas. So Daniel is newly baptized into the church after Eli makes him admit that he has abandoned his child off to a prestigious academy for the deaf in San Francisco. And Daniel does not care for Eli's shenanigans. So while they're laying the pipe that's going to go to California, H.W. comes back and Daniel's like, hooray, my boy. And he's like, oh, check out all the sweet stuff we've been doing while you're gone. And H.W.'s like beating on him. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I get it. I sent you away. But uh, we're going to be here now. It's going to be good. To calm him down, Daniel takes H.W. to go get this nice dinner at the hotel, and all these standard oil men come, and Daniel Plainview makes this big scene, this big drunk scene, and then we cut to 1927, where we see that 
H.W. is marrying Mary Sunday. It's real cute. They're giving their vows in sign language. It's real adorable. Mm-hmm. And then H.W. comes to see old man Daniel Plainview in his mansion. He's he's rich from all his oil and he's reclusive and drunk. And he's like, hey, I would like, he, he signs with his, with his interpreter, I would like for you to let me out of your contract so that I can go into business for myself. I want to go to Mexico with my wife and start my own oil business. And Daniel Plainview was like, you are going to be my competitor. I will not let you out of this and they keep screaming at him that he's a bastard from a basket. Bastard from a basket, fellas. H.W., not to be confused with D.W. from Arthur, decides to look at... <laughs> <laughs> Great joke for me. <laughs> looks at Daniel and says, I'm glad I'm not any of you. And he just walks out. And then Eli shows up. Oh, bad timing, Eli. And uh, Daniel is quite inebriated. I look how much money I have. I don't care that you've humiliated me and all this stuff. Eli's like repentant stuff. Fellas. Eli has run out of money from the original 5000 that Daniel gave him. Eli took it all and he went on a missions trip uh, and did stuff. Who knows? He did it off screen. And now Eli is willing to sell Daniel the rights to specifically drill on the bandy lot, which Daniel never actually drilled on. He just built a pipeline through. But Daniel, being a very wise and cunning negotiator, has already sucked up all the oil from the bandy lot. Because if I have a milkshake, and you have a milkshake, and I have a straw that reaches all the way over to your milkshake, I drink your milkshake. I drink it up because of this thing called drainage. Drainage! Drainage, Eli! So all the oil is gone, and Eli has no hope for getting any more, any funds. And Daniel is just, he's enraged right now. And in a, in a drunken rage, he throws some, some bowling balls at Eli and from his indoor bowling alley. And, uh, and he whacks Eli on the head with a pin. And finally, at two hours and 37 minutes, we have blood, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> And Eli has perished. A servant comes in and says, oh, Mr. Plainview, are you all right? And Mr. Plainview says, I'm done now. Roll credits. The movie is over. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Nick, it was interesting that you said in your, in your one-sentence summary that it's like a horror movie, but it's not. Because Paul Thomas Anderson considered this a horror movie. Yeah, I uh, it's not it like was. an explicit kind of horror movie, but yeah, he had that in his mind while he was making it. I thought it was totally leaning up to a horror movie, especially with like how insane Eli was about the church and especially mm. the opening sound editing and the, the eeriness of it all, like all this hard work. Like I going said, it's on. just an opening sh- shot of just land and there's just like this ominous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you cannot talk about this movie without talking about the music. Yeah. I want, the, the sound oh, yeah. is just haunting all throughout and it sets such a str- range and like eerie tone through the throughout the entire movie although i think there are quite a few scenes that are completely musicless like when daniel first talks to bandy comes to mind and i believe the two scenes after the last time jump i don't think those have much music in them but other than that the entire movie has this driving soundtrack with some like long held eerie music would that be in a minor chord? I don't know, music. 
I don't know. But I, I just know, know how it makes me feel. They did do a couple um, scenes with no sound at all when they were have um, HW's perspective when he first mm-hmm. became death, especially the day after when he's in bed and like looks up and Daniel's just like to the viewers at home. I mouthed a bunch of words without making sound. <laughs> and that's what he saw. And the audience, because yeah. we don't know what he said. The thing about the sound design that I really loved kind of tying in with that is they knew when to push and when to stop. Like when you said it was kind of like, or, you know, it's like a horror movie, but not, what I like is that it didn't feel a need because it's not technically a horror film. It didn't have to stick to that formula. So it could build that tension and then leave silence and it just makes you uncomfortable. So a lot of this is this discomforting, ominous presence throughout the whole thing that just eats the back of your mind that something is just not right with all these people. And it never has that uh, gratuitous payoff until near the end when it starts driving those things home. Yeah, there's fantastic uses of silence in this movie. They mm-hmm. will cut to close-ups of characters' faces, not while they're talking, just while they're waiting. While somebody is finished, they will cut to the next person and they will just take a long time before they say anything, just sitting in that silence, really ruminating on it. A scene that really had that in it was when Daniel confronted Henry the last time. It was all from like looking down at Henry's perspective. Even when Daniel was talking, it was just focused right on Henry's face and you were looking at only his expressions. And Henry's just like trying to think of like the answer. That is one of my favorite shots in the whole movie where after he kills Henry, he slams the pickaxe into the ground. And then as he's dragging it the length of his body, the camera tracks with the pickaxe through the, the whole length of Henry's dead body. It's really fantastic. Yeah. Well, and that's your favorite shot? One of my favorite shots of the whole oh, movie, okay. yeah. I think- it's getting into favor. It's everyone's favorite scene. Mine is when the, the first accident happens with the oil rig. It's just so sudden. Like, everything's going fine. Like, like at the very, very beginning when Daniel's down in there and the stuff falls and hits the guy? Yes. When um the wooden oil pump they had breaks and the big beam comes down and kills the HW's original father. Because everything was going decent for Daniel. He started moving on the up and up again. And he's down in the pit. And we just see, like, abrupt chaos. Like, it's the music. It slowly, like, cuts out. And just... <gasps> giant beam comes down and crushes the guy. And it really set up the tone of, like oh, people can die in this industry and that continues to happen throughout the movie, but also how scenes of calm can just escalate. Robbie, what about you? My favorite scene, I have a lot. I really, I really enjoy it. Pick one. All right. If I have to pick one scene that is my absolute hands down favorite, it would be the first negotiating scene in the Sunday Ranch household, where Daniel and Eli are having their first real interaction that sets the stage for the entire rest of the film. And the lighting, the sound design of that scene, the acting, it was amazing because it was very subtle because you're thinking like, oh, maybe these are just gonna be one-off characters, but because of how they're acting and the way that it's bringing into it, it's like, oh no, this is going to be a massive plot line. He's just like, and my church, you'll do it for the church, right? And how that works out. And uh, so many themes, so much stuff. I love it. That's a great 
scene cinematically also because it starts on a wide shot where it's the father daniel and eli and they're all three in the scene pretty wide and daniel's talking to the father trying to get him to sell and eli keeps interrupting saying i think we deserve more because of all this and then it cuts in just a little bit tighter where they're all three still in the scene but it's a little more framed on daniel and eli and then as eli and daniel become more the vocal dominators of the scene yeah, it goes into single close-ups on both of them, cutting back and forth, and it's fantastic filmmaking. Caleb, what's your favorite what's my movie favorite part? There are a lot of good ones. The bowling alley scene is a really good scene, and I just, I really enjoy it. Despite at that point in the movie, as an audience member, I was completely just like cut off from Daniel. Like early on in the movie, you could appreciate and admire his drive and his shrewd business sense because sometimes it's nice to see like a really smart guy win and he, he does a lot of winning throughout the movie no matter what but i think that my favorite he hates scene, to see other people win hmm. can't stand it can't stand it but i think my favorite scene is actually the scene where paul goes to daniel and fletcher to sell out his family essentially to say like hey you know there's, there's this place in california and if you give me some money i'll tell you where exactly where to go it feels like one of those scenes that as an actor you can just deconstruct and break it into its component parts and then put it back together and there's a, just so much in the motivation and the character work behind each thing that is said that is so interesting to me even though it it does have a lot to do with plot, but like it's not like the turning point of the whole movie. It's just sort of the intrusion. Yeah, that's great because Paul keeps saying, like, I will give you the information if I get my money. I just want the money and I want the information. And there's a great line that I wrote down from Daniel that after the deal goes down, he says, uh, if I travel all the way up there and I find that you've been lying to me, I'm going to find you and I'm going to take more than my money back. Is that all right with you? And he says it in just such this imposing way. Where he's right. like, I'm going to take more than my money back. Is that all right? Basically, like, is this deal legit? And he's like, uh-huh. Yeah, I know you will find me. I know you will kill me. This is good. Yeah, and that, like, pretty much gives you all that you need to know about Daniel for pretty much the rest of the movie. There are a lot more scenes that give you a little bit more insight into his psyche. The scene where he's talking with Henry by the fireside. But, like, pretty much that's all you need. And then you're off. And from there, it's just a lot of business going down. My favorite scene is probably the scene that we kind of glossed over and didn't really mention is when the fire happens. We talked about the oil shooting through because it hit a gas pocket. And when that happens, Daniel screams, lights out! And he runs out there. He's basically saying, put out all fires, put out everything. And it still ends up catching. And it really shows Daniel's priorities because he grabs up HW, runs and takes him to the mess hall, sets him down. And then he's like, oh, shit, things are on fire. I got to go save my money. And leaves his son with his assistant. Is that the word you used, Caleb? Yeah, assistant. Uh, Fletcher, <laughs> I believe. <is> his name. <laughs> and goes and deals with that. And then comes back and it's like, okay, let's make sure HW is okay. Yeah. But, I don't think that's wrong, though. Because HW is out of harm. And there's not I'm, much. I didn't say it was wrong. I'm just saying it shows his priorities. Because like, I'm going to make sure the kid's okay. Then mm-hmm. I'm going to take care of my money then I'm really going to make sure the yeah. kid's okay. I think the scene is really important as well because, as I'll go into shortly, uh, with a lot of the religious themes in this, 
this is the trial by fire or the sacrifice and what it chooses here foreshadows what he'll choose in the future. He leaves HW so that he can have his money as he does and always will do for the entire film. Yeah. There's also like that, that line where Daniel is talking to Fletcher and like Fletcher says, uh, is HW okay? And Daniel's like, no, he's not. But he still continues to look at, at the fire and just we, we hold on his face for a good couple of seconds and he just doesn't move. And I think there's some indication that Fletcher's like, well, that's a bad thing. And Daniel says, well, actually, there's an ocean of oil underneath our feet. Why do you look so morose? Yeah. There's an ocean of oil underneath our feet. <laughs> I would like for us to talk about H.W. and Daniel. I believe that... Daniel, throughout most of the film, doesn't care about anything but getting his money. Literally, there will be blood is the blood of the earth, the oil, is he's going to get the oil. Mm -hmm. That is what he cares about. And while it is revealed that he had HW with him as a prop to be like, I'm a family man, look at this cute face, sell your real estate to me. I really do believe that he loved that kid. Despite his best efforts, he really cared for HW, he really loved him. The problem is he didn't know how to treat him as a son or to be a father to him. He considered him a partner, you know? Yeah. Like, this is my partner. He works with me, but he still loved him. Yeah, I think it'd be pretty much impossible not to. Yeah, it, it seems to me like he loves HW, but not only can he not show it, but if you look at his big reaction from the vitriol he had with the standard oil representatives when they met, when they even mentioned his son and how to raise his son he went ballistic and that was something that cut to the deep of him because he wants to be a father that he did not have he has no family and the closest thing he has to family he doesn't know how to treat but if someone tells him how to treat his son he freaks because that's the difference. Like it is my family, but I'm holding him at arm's length and ends up being his downfall near the end with that relationship. Because in the end, when HW tells him, dad, I love you. I'm, I'm grateful for everything you've given me. Will you please dissolve the partnership? What he's trying to say is I don't want to be your partner. I want to be your son. I want to go on, make my own business, make my own decisions. Will you let me go? He's not asking for huge shares. He's not asking for the world. What he's asking is, can you please, you know, in your mind, let me go and be your son. He could not do that because he couldn't think of him in that way. He thinks of him, at, like you said, as a partner. So he's like, no, you're going to be my competitor. You're my competitor now, and I will treat you like my competitors. Well, I think at that point, Daniel had lost all humanity anyways. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I don't even see you as my son or partner anymore. Now, like you said, it's just my competitor. So he didn't feel bad at all about telling him the truth or calling him a bastard from a basket just because he was so far gone from humanity. One perspective I want to put out there is, did Daniel, was he more into his camaraderie with his workers or people who worked for him? Was that more of his driving point for keeping HW around? because he felt the burden of um, his dad dying under his, like, not supervision, but, well, yeah, his, uh, under his, his supervision, because he even went down to the whole, his whole, like, motto is, um, I'm going to be there in the hole working with the workers to get the oil 
to show how much it means to me to put a hard day's work in. And J or HW's dad died while he was down there and he felt bad. Like he went up and immediately started yelling at people like, why wasn't, why did this happen? It could have been avoided. And again, later on when the other worker dies in the hole, the first day they start drilling, he talks about how everything could have been avoided. And is it more his attachment to HW is more like focused on the respect for the workers that have fallen under him? I don't think so because when that second guy dies, they wake him up and he's like, somebody died down the hole. And he's all, who was it? And he says his name. He's like, do I know that guy? He's like, no, you don't know him. He's just one of your workers. I think that initially he took the baby as a prop and despite his best efforts, ended up falling in love, having that, that fraternal bond. As I guess you can see that could. in the train scene. Like the first time they're on the train mm-hmm. and he starts playing with it. The baby reach up and touch his face. It's real adorable. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a cute couple of twins there. Yes, Aww. Harrison Taylor and Stockton Taylor. If you're out there, we're big fans of your work back in the day. <laughs> uh, what I want to know, what does HW stand for? Do we have any theories? Homework. Henry <laughs> 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 oh, Wilkes, maybe? Let me, let me look this up. Howard Winchester. I was thinking of Howard. I was wondering if maybe it was, there was some sort of biblical name because a lot of the main characters in this have uh, biblical names because you got Eli and Paul and Daniel and H.W. So it sort of seems that he would, but I can't think of an H.W. name in the Bible. Nick, you got anything? Any any accepted theories? Howard Wallowitz. That was a joke from Big Bang Theory. Oh. (laughs) Because my my guess would be like Howard something. I can't find it. Maybe Howard Henry because it's like the Wild West, you know, Henry Fonda, all those classic people. Yes, the W stands for Fonda. Hank. (laughs) No, just just the Hank Wachowski. Hank Wachowski. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. We've agreed. So let's talk about how this is a movie clearly about desire and obsession. And it has to do with two showmen who are willing to do whatever it takes to achieve their goals. With Daniel Plainview, it's about lying to people, pretending like he cares for them when clearly he doesn't. He has that line where I don't like people. I don't want to be around them. I only use them to get to their oil. And Eli needs to trick people so that he can feel big and important. And he's just this real, like, I think I'm holier than thou. I think I'm better than I am. I think I deserve more of God's love and attention. Like, he really wants the attention for being this preacher. So what do you guys think about the two different ideas of them being showmen and how they trick people and how they go about their lives? It's an interesting mirror between the two. But it shows how each of them is trying to get the end goal of their, like you said, their desire, which ties back into the baptism sort of thing that's going on throughout the entire film that I'm going to touch on. But the baptism of desire of like what they want, even though they don't quite have it yet. And Eli sees that as like, if I can gain more people, if I can gain more money for the church, if I can go on missionary places, if I can become a radio preacher, as these things are growing greater and greater through people. Whereas 
with Daniel, like you said, he doesn't like people. So he wants to use the earth. He wants to use literally the lifeblood of the earth to drive what he wants. So he just wants to claim more and more land, people be damned. And so it's looking at these two different routes of these, show, like you said, showmen going through and fighting for what they want through two different means, one with charisma and one with tactics, I guess you could say. So it's just interesting to see the interplay and how it comes to a head in that final 20 minutes. Caleb, I'm interested on your critical thoughts on this subject. Well, you know, I'm right there with you, Greg. I think the movie definitely sets itself up for the 1v1 in the ultimate quest for what appears to be at first that Eli's goal is influence and power over people. But I think in that last scene, it becomes evident that they're both just after money and, you know, uh, worldly possessions, which is. I think he's about fame because he keeps talking about at the end where he's like, Bandy's grandson is wants to move to Hollywood and be in pictures. And I think he can do that. I'm going to help him. Basically, he's going to try to like ride his coattails, which is why he was a radio preacher. He's like, I just want oh, that yeah, notoriety. Yeah. I forgot all about that he was a, a radio preacher. So, yeah, I mean, Daniel's goals seem very straightforward. It seems that he just wants to have enough money so that he can make himself a big house and shut himself in and no more people except for those who are on his payroll. I don't know if his servant even gets a name, uh, like the last servant we see in the last two scenes. I think Um, his name was Hey You. Yeah, (laughs) Hey You. And yes, thank you. But Eli is sort of an enigma. You know, his goals get unraveled further and further. And his and Daniel's showmanship are quite impressive since we have that scene where Eli is expelling a demon of arthritis uh, and we see that he's a really passionate preacher and he really sort of puts on this face of caring for his people and he makes a great show and indicating of his faith and his connection to God. And meanwhile, Daniel's show is all about placing his image with the common folk. We have that scene that he repeats twice where he's like, ladies and gentlemen, I've brought you here today just so that that there's some rumors going around and I wanted you to hear it from me that I'm just a plain oil man. I work with my son. This is HW. Everyone knows. He's just going to remain quiet and all. And (laughs) he just puts on this face of, I'm just one of you and I'm just doing the business. But, you know, if you let me do my thing, then the community is going to be stronger as a whole. And I think it is an interesting duality that has a lot of parallels, but it intersects at some points as well, where there aren't like direct crossovers. For me, Daniel's whole view is he wants to get a house and be comfortable. Like back when he was a child, he used to look at this house and be like, that's what I want. I want to have that, but not in this part of the country. So he goes out and he works as a, like a coal miner and like, tries to get silver he finally gets that and works his way up and he gets hw and that's the one portion of family he had because he didn't really have like a stable family growing up as he finds out later where his dad divorced his mom and everything so he finally gets that and he has hw and then hw loses his hearing yikes hw loses loses his hearing and he feels like he's starting to get detached from him. And that's why he sends him to the deaf school. Minus the whole like fire, I'm going to burn you down, which came out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> At least well, I, I, I was not expecting that. I have thoughts on that, but continue your thought. Mm-hmm. And so he ends up latching on to Henry, who he's very 
not sure of, but he wants to have something. So he sort of reaches for it and like, he can see his lies aren't fully working, but he just like, ah, screw it. I need something. I'm a very sad man. Cause as he says, he can't make friends with people well, or like be with them. He finds he it hard. People. Yes. He hates most people. And then when he finds out Henry bullshitted him, cause he's not actually Henry. Um, he kills him uh-huh. and then he feels left alone because HW is again, yeeted out to the school for the deaf in San Francisco. <laughs> That's how it's written in the script. Yeah, it's just, yeet, yeet. Man, that scene is heartbreaking where he's like, all right, you stay here. I'm going to go talk to the conductor. You stay on the train. And he leaves, and the kid's just like, no! And he just yeah. like, walks away. And he doesn't show it, but you can just see in his posture and his determined walk that it's heartbreaking that he has to send his son away, but he, he can't deal anyway. with it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And then at the end, you know, J- H.W. leaves again, and it's just like, that's the last straw. He can't handle like losing people again and being alone, even though he has all the money. He doesn't have the one thing he truly wishes for. And that's Daniel's thing. Now, Eli has a thing where he wants to have social power. He doesn't care necessarily about money, but yeah. the reason he negotiates for a bigger church is to make him step up where he has a social power in his community. And that's why he moves to radio and wants to do television. He doesn't, I don't think he necessarily cares about the word of God overall. I think he more thinks that god gave him that and that he's going to take that and move up with it but he's not necessarily using the word of god to spread the goodness of it he's using it as like a stepping stone for him to become more of a figure than he is that's why he's so obsessed with it in his small community town because that's how he gained the entire influence of the town and like made like a cult of his what's it called miracle worship yeah, uh, the subgenre where they perform miracles to show. Oh genres. yeah, like faith healing kind of thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the southern tent churches, you know. Yeah, Caleb had brought up that scene with he's like, "I'm going to get rid of your arthritis," and that really shows where I think he is more showman than he is healer or preacher because he's like, "I'm not going to yell at the demon at you. I'm just going to calmly ask for you to get out, get out, demon, get out." But then he gets more big and grandiose it's like get out i will crawl at thee and bite thee and if i have no teeth i will gum thee and he's screaming and just rushing to the end of the church and that's how he whips these people into a frenzy and it's not so much about this is what god will do for you this is listen to me and cheer me eli is really the representation i think of just envy incarnate because he was a younger twin he came out after paul Paul got a lot of the attention and was basically out on his own, was able to make his own decisions where he had to stay home. And a lot of the things that Eli goes for isn't money per se. So it's not greed so much as it is the envy of wanting to be loved by everyone. He wants to be famous. He wants to have people worship his name through God, of course, but you know him as well. Wink. Yep. (laughs) And in the end, at the very end, when he's having that breakdown, at first, you know, it's the whole, like, fine, I'll say that I don't believe in God just so because you want to hear it. But after he hears that nothing he does is going to give him that money, 
he breaks down and the facade breaks. Like I try asking him and he doesn't answer me. It do- he doesn't do what I want him to. I want, I want, I want. So his whole thing is coveting. He's coveting what Daniel has, but both of them are equally miserable. And finally he gets baptized himself with a bowling pin on the floor. <laughs> baptized in blood for real. Wow. Yeah. He gets <laughs> baptized at the church of the bank. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely Eli's all about power because the second Daniel does that whole like mud thing, which again, it's another thing that comes out of like nowhere. Eli just came up to say hi and then Daniel throws him in the oil. And no, he mud. came up uh, to ask about money. Yeah, he came to ask he about money. And, like was, right after like, get here. you got That was a small bit. Anyway, got deafened. He throws him in the oil and he totally dehumanizes him and puts him in a place of your scum and trash. And then Eli goes back home and immediately takes it out on his dad. You're nothing. I forgot the quotes. It's been a couple of days. And he goes, stupid man. You let this man come in and take your land. You're stupid and weak. And it was your stupid son who did this to us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That takes out his dad and Mm -hmm. keeps bringing up his brother, which shows like almost an inferiority complex. And then he gets relief or satisfaction when he's done knowing that he is now the top dog of the family. Mm-hmm. And, and, was, and that's the thing. Like it, it removes all the pain we would have felt, the empathy we felt for him getting pushed down to the ground. It's like, oh no, poor Eli, he got crushed. But when he goes home and does the exact same thing to his father, who's done nothing wrong, it cements in the audience's mind like, oh, oh no, I get it. Okay. They're both, they're both pieces of, yeah. Uh, Interesting. I was done with Eli before then. <laughs> Yeah, totally. That guy's a scumbag. Interesting bit about that scene when Daniel Plainview pushes them in the oil and everything. The very next day, they shot the baptism scene. So oh. Paul Dano got to get his, his revenge on Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, there's, there's some slapping. <laughs> slapping. Yeah, he's slapping the shit out of him. Yeah. <laughs> it was so weird seeing this movie with Paul Dano because the only other thing I like remember him in is Swiss Army Man. And that movie is like 90% him in this like very wow. innocent, well, until the very end, you know, very innocent person trying to figure yeah, out what, life again and explain life and then have it. It's a very different movie. Yeah. Watching this is just like, <laughs> Jesus, he's, he's like a horrible preacher. It's like, I don't know. Is personally for me, he left such an impression in Swiss Army Man that it was sort of hard to take him seriously as this like evil preacher. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I didn't make the connection. I've seen both movies, but I, I it didn't link in my mind that those were the same guy. <laughs> you say it was like 10 years apart. It took like a while of watching this. I was like, where do I know him from? Where have I seen him from? And I was like, oh my God, the movie, that's it. Yeah, he looks a lot younger. Well, he was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ten About years 10 ago. years younger, if I were to guess. <laughs> Yeah, he was 23 when this was released, and then Sarman, he was like 30-something. The baptism scene has my favorite bit of Daniel Day-Lewis's accent, where mm-hmm. he's he's screaming at him, Do you accept the Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been trying and failing so hard. Like, any time I try and quote Dango Plainview, I've been trying to, like, say it in his voice, and I'm, I'm trying to not to, but it's, like, such an infectious voice. You want to try... I can't like, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. I like that scene a lot, though. It's another good scene where 
There's so many iconic lines from this movie that just is brought about almost entirely from performance. Because I think what Greg said that the camera work is made such that you can just focus on the face, focus on the acting. And so the performances really make these lines stand out. And the baptism scene is one of those where you have like, a, I'm ready for the blood. Give me the blood, Lord. And I've abandoned my child. Those are, those are the two big ones, but also... You know, he, he finished, uh, Eli finishes baptizing Daniel and Daniel just like, oh, and there's a pipeline. <laughs> and, Score. And like the entire scene previously is just moot. means nothing to him. Even though- Speaking of the filmmaking, the way they shoot this, one quote I got, and I don't know if this is true, the total two and a half hour movie has 678 shots, which is an insanely small amount for a modern day movie. I think I saw they this map, yeah. Spend cool. a lot of time on longer takes mm-hmm. and not just static longer takes. They do a lot of setting up one frame, moving to a different frame in that same shot and sometimes moving to a third frame in that same shot. So it's a lot of like dynamic camera work that's still prescient to letting the actors do their job and tell the story. Yeah, that's why I really like that scene with Paul because that, I think that does have three frames where you have the frame of Paul's silhouette at the door and you see Daniel. And then the second frame, like a little bit further in the room where Paul sits down. And so you have Paul and Daniel sitting down opposite each other. And then Paul leans back and then we zoom in even further. And we find that Fletcher has been sitting on the other side, on the far side of the table the whole time. And now it's like, ooh, the scene is getting interesting. There's three people at the table. And it's like, it's such a mundane thing to get people excited about but it strikes you it struck me as such a big reveal like oh wow there's three people sitting at this table what's going to happen next exactly it draws the eye and it really frames what it wants you to look at without being showy or obvious and without obviously cutting to it it's it's a lot of good cinematography moving it flows with the scene like i said let the actors do what they're going to do and still get the point across one scene i wanted to continue looking at was the scene with henry at the campfire with the gun to his face. And it's a scene where you're just like, you're waiting until Henry like slips up when Daniel's talking about what the farm's name was by where they live. And scene that really, like I kept thinking of when I was watching it was the scene from no country for old men where the, how much have you ever lost on a coin toss scene? No, no, no. Ah, what's his name? Woody Harrelson. Okay. Woody Harrelson. The the scene where Woody Harrelson's character finally uh, breaks and gets, Spoilers ahead? Skip uh, over. Spoilers ahead for No Country for Old Men. Yes. <laughs> he gets shot, but the whole scene is about him changing his character. Like he's looking at the guy with the big shotgun and he has to keep his composure. And the second he loses his composure, it's over. And with Henry, the second he like slows down to start thinking, you know Daniel's just like, fuck, have to kill him. And it was just so intense to... The, I, I don't think there was even music during that scene. It was more just Henry's breathing and the the pattern of his voice throughout it. Anything yeah, else? totally. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting bit about that. No Country for Old Men was shooting at the same time in the same place. They both were shooting in Marfa, Texas, because they were having a hard time finding California in the early 1900s without modern stuff around. It turns out Marfa, Texas has all that great open stuff and so during one day when they were testing the big derelict fire there was so much smoke 
that they actually ruined shots from No Country for Old Men. Really? <laughs> yeah, because it was so big and so much smoke. <laughs> That's one thing I wanted to talk about is just how they found the big open like sceneries for this movie when it's supposed to be set, was it California? 1909. Yeah, it was... Several like times. The, uh, the ocean shot with sure. him and Henry where they're sitting on the beach and you just see the entire shoreline. That's like almost a mile and a half of no buildings, no lighthouses. I want to know where these were shot because those like seem, it's probably like right behind them. There's a bunch of stuff, but just like yeah, that probably. there's nothing. You pan over like two inches and there's a Taco Bell. Yeah. Or- <laughs> most of it was Texas. Parts of it were California, but most of it was Texas. The big like wide open shots. Yeah. Like when Henry and Daniel are first like laying out the where they want to have the oil line, uh, they get over a hill and you see the ocean behind it. Amazing scenery. And it looked like it wasn't, it hasn't been touched by anyone. There was like no tracks at all. It was just like open field and like, oh, I want to find these places and I want to sit there and look at it and be like, I've seen this. <laughs> <laughs> Build a house right there. Never see anyone else again. Two milkshakes. <laughs> and I'll have there two milkshakes. So Caleb and Nick always drinks now. Build it in and out. <laughs> was I the first? Oh, is that <laughs> I, I do. I, I forgot all about it. If I ever see you all again, sure. I'm I'm moving. Yeah. It's not on me. <laughs> we'll track you down. <laughs> we'll I you. come all the way there. <laughs> there are no drinks. And I'm going to take more than your milkshake. And more, do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Fellas, do you think it's time? I think it's time. Nick, will you please lead us in? All right. This one's for all you listeners out there. And now it's time for Robbie's themes. Yay. Robbie, what do you got for us? One sec. Okay. That was anticlimactic. <laughs> now it's time for Robbie's themes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now you're going to listen to me. I brought his themes and stop Robbie's themes. <laughs> now it's time for Robbie's themes. How did you Daniel Day-Lewis? Like, I don't know. It's time for, I, I can't even try. To do Daniel Day-Lewis, you just do Irish. But to do Daniel playing you, that's a whole different situation. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for Robbie's... Uh, yeah, no. That's, that's Sean Connery. <laughs> now it's time for Robbie's... <laughs> and now it's time for Robbie's themes. Robbie's themes. You could change your fate, <laughs> would you? <laughs> you could change your fate, would you? <laughs> you could change your fate. <laughs> well, now you have to leave it in. Funny. <laughs> So this show was amazing. It had so many themes in it packed together. It's based on an Upton Sinclair novel, so you know that it has to be interesting. It's based on, like we said before, loosely based. Loosely based. It's loosely based. He said he probably read about the first 150 pages and was like, yeah, I got what I need, because he wanted to tell his own story. Like me and Infinite Jest. Um, Yeah, Zack Snyder with Dark Knight Returns. But, um, yeah, so... It has a lot of religious themes. It has a lot of political commentary. But I could talk about the family. I could talk about uh, the use of food. Uh, milk comes up a lot in this. Uh, but I don't want to talk about that to start with because we're going to talk about worship and baptisms, which I had so much fun looking back and forth between all the scenes and trying to draw lines of where different baptisms happen for different characters. And... Uh, yeah, I wanted to get what your guys' thoughts were on the theme of 
warship as far as like what each character, including HW warships and what their baptism was. Because each one goes through their own baptism. HW mm. goes through two. Yes. HW gets uh, christened as a baby in some Catholic imagery. Someone takes some oil and smears it over his forehead when he's a baby. That's the first one. His yep. biological dad. Yeah, yeah. Was, was it his biological dad? It yeah. only occurred yeah, to me that that was his that, that was HW's dad upon his second viewing. So, grant sure. me some slack, fellas. What was HW's second baptism? When the oil thing goes off and he gets covered in oil again. Oh, uh, yeah. The gets gas baptized pocket. in oil twice. Yeah. Yeah, so I would say that HW worships Daniel. He's learning the business. He's always by his side. But his oil baptism is more of a anti-baptism, I guess. Yes. Reverse baptism, because mm-hmm. it really takes him away from what he worships more than brings it towards him. Yes, and also um, it's important that he lights the building on fire. That interaction is him also denouncing his faith in his father. Fellas, I have a different interpretation, and Nick had brought this up. Yeah. So I think what happens before it shows H.W. looking through the notebook that quote-unquote Henry had, which is Henry's actual notebook, but this guy who's pretending to be Henry had, and I think he was flipping through it, found out that he's a liar, and that's why he set the building on fire, because he was oh. like, I'm going to burn this liar out oh. of our lives. So like, oh. That's my interpretation. Of Clearing it, the family name. In a way. This guy's a liar. I'm that's not an gonna... interesting take. Mm. Yeah, because he is reading it. Mm-hmm. In the scene before, that did not occur to me. I did not know. Oh, why. and then he's ditched. Yes. Yeah. Dang. Sad. Mm-hmm. It happened. Yeah, I'm with Greg on that one. That's what happened. That's canon. Yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's a depressing option. It's definitely my canon now. <laughs> I, uh, back, to, back to baptisms, Robbie. I will say that Eli was also baptized twice in the film. Yep. Okay. where he is baptized in the oil when Daniel shoves his face in there. And like Caleb said, he's baptized at the end in blood. Didn't Robbie say that? I Whoever said, said it. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> Give me the credit. It's okay. Kind of credits to you. <laughs> fellas, we all said it. Welcome yeah. to fellas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We are hey, one. Fellas. This is actually us one person doing incredibly good voices of four people. Mm. Yeah. We're an amalgamation. the audio. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, so he, he gets baptized twice, but what does he change? What does he worship in the first part, and what does he worship right before his second baptism? Because that's the thing. It's a reversal of his power dynamic because he takes on the desire. He's, he's begging and pleading Daniel to give him money, to give him the stuff that he needs. He's worshiping Daniel at the end, that last little part, when he's trying desperately to get the money. I think that is a bit of a stretch, but that's where I'm going with as far as like yeah, what he wants at the end. He's worshiping, but he's definitely prostrating himself before him. Mm-hmm. He's willing to admit, I think for the first time to anyone out loud, that he is a false, a false prophet. A false, he's prophet. A false prophet. And uh, I forget if he makes him say there is no God, but he's definitely like not, he's not a man of God. Yeah, he, he says that, um, that he has to agree that God is superstition. That's yes, superstition. God is superstition and you are a false prophet. And he keeps yelling at him and making him say it. And I think he finally comes to that conclusion. Yes, that I am a false prophet. Yep. And he drops all pretense. When he starts begging, he he starts confessing. He was like, I'm a sinner. I have done, I have done sinning things. I need to be forgiven. I need you to 
basically he's asking him to forgive him. And that's what you would do with, you know, if you were worshiping God and you were, like you said, prostrating before him, which is very different imagery. But also it's like a deal with the devil because he's making this deal with Daniel who has renounced everything. He's renounced his family. He has no faith. He's renounced humanity as a whole. And so, yeah, at that point. yeah. And at that point, Eli doesn't have He's got any... his booze. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, That's what and it's worshiping. Worshiping cigarette holder. <laughs> worshiping the whiskey and the cigarette holder. But yeah, no, th- those are his two. And for Daniel, his baptism, obviously there was the water baptism when he was during the scene where he was like, okay, yeah, I'll just do this so I can get what I want. But I think that he had two baptisms as well. The first baptism was in the oil well mm. when it landed and killed the other guy. That was his first so, baptism. Of, baptized in blood also, just someone yeah. else's. Because it will be blood. Which, by the way, everyone's having head injuries throughout this whole thing. It's like yeah. on the head, on the head, on the head, and then blunt force is, on the head. It is a dangerous have, uh, profession. Didn't have safety helmets back then. Yeah. Oh, no orange. Protects your noggin. All right. So aside from those, which I really like that, you know, theming going back and forth of what they want. Um, I will touch on the milk because I found that to be an, an interesting thing. And um, it doesn't seem to have much traction, I guess, because I did a little bit of a cursory look uh, to see if anyone else had caught on this milk thing. And I was like all excited for nothing. And it was an obvious thing. Did you but, go to Google and type in there will be blood milk or there will be yes. milk blood? I said milk, there will be blood because I didn't want to have the weird stuff that would pop up if those were too close to each other. <laughs> it doesn't really matter, but <laughs> yeah, milk comes up a lot. The baby bottle in the beginning has no milk in it. And uh, the only thing he has to pour into it is whiskey, which he gives to HW right after his dad dies. Later really, on, he covers the top of it with whiskey. Yeah, it totally has milk in it. As there's milk inside. Oh. Yeah, that, that's like after HW gets uh, deafened. No, 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 no. No, no, no. no, no. Back when HW is a baby. Oh, yeah. No, the yeah. I like to think he... he's cleaning off the, the sucky part, but he could just be here. Dope yourself up, kid. I think it's more to numb the pain because his I don't dad. Know what to call it. Kind of. He's a I baby. Mean, he doesn't a... care. Yeah, I know. That used but... to be a big thing. He didn't know what to do. A lot of yeah. times people to calm babies down would like put brandy or whiskey on their gums. Mm-hmm. My parents would just shake Before me. breastfeeding and things like that. Because brandy was like Motrin. Yeah, it's like, oh, do you have a problem? Uh, just have some, have some brandy. Yeah, you know, you used to make alcohol. Yeah, you, you now read old literature, and someone's like, mm, I have a stomach ache, a headache, and my arm hurts. I think I'll have a brandy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But later on, the fir- when he gets uh, offered milk at the at the ranch, it's like, oh, you know, you're gonna have. Do you have bread? And he's like, I don't have bread. I only have potatoes. And then he's like, but I can get you some milk. And he's like, okay, you know, I'll get some milk. And they drink some milk. And then, and that's the family welcoming Daniel in. Later on, he asks for milk again. And this time it is the little boy asking for milk and he gets the milk from Mary. And then they start meeting together. I'm thinking milk represents some sort of purity. And at the end of the film, they bring back the milk again in the form of a milkshake where it's been, it's been changed. It's not milk anymore. Now it's this it's uh, sugary up. dessert that's all thrown together and it's not pure anymore. It's bastardized milk into this uh, <laughs> pink abomination. 
I'm sorry. I just picture Robbie going to a soda parlor and be like, I'll have some bastardized milk <laughs> with whipped cream and a cherry, please. But, I would say that yeah. the bastardized milk is more when he puts whiskey in the milk to have HW go to sleep after he's deafened. That's how I go to bed. That's true. So, Five and, yeah, I, I forgot to mention that one. <laughs> All right, for me, when I knew I saw Mel come up a lot in this movie. But I didn't try to attribute it to anything. I just realized that it was 19, what, 11? 1909, 1911, and 1929, I believe, are the jumps. 27. 27. Coca-Cola and sodas weren't necessarily available everywhere. It was more towards the east of the United States. At that point, the most like popular thing besides alcohol would be milk because it was very readily available. Many, like... it. California was big on cattle and like goats during the time. So it was the most accessible thing besides water that wasn't whiskey. Hey, Robbie, what is your interpretation when they go to the restaurant and he orders a whiskey and a water for HW? He orders himself a whiskey and a water for HW. Oh, okay. I was and not, not milk. That's not how I remember it. Because he can't milk. provide. He can't provide that purity. He can't provide the family that HW needs is my thought process on it. Because remember, he never he never gives milk to him. In the beginning, when there's milk in the bottle, like I thought the bottle was empty, but actually makes more sense now. The milk in the bottle was his family, was the, was the comfort his family could give him. All that Daniel could give HW was whiskey. He put whiskey on it to numb the pain. And then he puts whiskey in the milk from the family to put him to sleep. And then he just orders himself a whiskey and him a water he can't give him any milk. He can't give him any of that purity. Hmm. That would be my stretch theory on that. Well, Robbie, I was going to go along with you, but then Greg brought up that, that last scene where HW just gets water. I'm going to relegate this theme and I'm going to demote it to maybe a motif that it's just sort of characterizes Daniel as a poor father. And that was Caleb's demotions. Yeah. <laughs> he's never able to... It goes never, down. Because <laughs> he never, he's never able to provide straight milk, you know, presumably like a mother would because he's a single father and he's only able to provide milk with whiskey or, or brandy because that's the only way he knows how. And I think that just sort of serves as a, a characterization of his poor fathering. Yeah, and, I think that, has, uh, that goes back yeah. to him seeing him more as a partner. He's like, hey, we did good. Let's drink. No. Exactly, and it's not like he doesn't have the ability to give him milk when he ordered him a water. He ordered him a water because he's like, "I don't like you right now. You get a water." And a water for the boy. Mm-hmm. Kind of, but I mean, thematically, it does. It makes more sense the way you guys are putting it. But I just, I definitely think it's one of those things that when it's mentioned once or twice, maybe it's a coincidence. When it comes up like five times and twice during an emotional scene. Uh, it has to be at least a motif, so I'll That's take true. the There's motion. a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, before you move on, Robbie, I would like to talk about that diner scene a little bit. Mm-hmm. And kind of what Nick said, there is a great bit of filmmaking going on in that scene because there are things in the foreground that keep separating Daniel and H.W. during that whole scene. Whether it's things like condiments on the table, they're splitting the two of them in the frame. When the waiter comes to talk to them, he splits them up in the frame. There is a menu shot that is coming in from the table in the foreground that just splits them in the frame and just separates the two of them during that scene. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't see that part. I think That's one of awesome. the reasons for that is at that point, HW had already made up his mind about trying to fully foster a relationship with Daniel. So even though Daniel might have thought maybe he could possibly save it later, HW, no matter what would have happened, he's still not going to go back to him. At least that's for the fact that they're separated the entire time. I felt that the decision was already made and the last scene where they're fighting is just the desperation from Daniel and then him not being able to portray what he really wants to HW in a fashion and just has his emotions take over him. Pretty much in 100% agreement with Nick. It's definitely a, a heartbreaking arc and I think an argument could be made that that last scene where HW and Daniel are breaking up for, for realsies is <laughs> you could just label it as the denouement because in my mind, they had already become separated into two entities by the time that Daniel abandons HW at the train. I think that is the turning point in their relationship and everything else is just sort of a pseudo denouement. But, you know, I'm probably wrong, but that's just my thought on it. That's my take on it, fellas. Nice, yeah, I think... I, I definitely agree. They were they were very separated. Their arcs no longer coincided after they got separated and he was left and behind. That betrayal, that feeling of being betrayed by him, um, really brings what he says to Daniel at the end into light because he's like, I love you for what you've done for me. I love, you know... I am your son. You've done these great things for me. Please let me go. It was very structured as a goodbye, not just a, Hey, can we dissolve this and I'll move on. But a, we are separating. I want you to, I, on my terms, it'll be good. And Daniel spat on that. And that would be the last, you know, the last interaction that they would have going forward. I think HW knew that Daniel would, would leave him and would just uh, let him go and, animosity what's the word i'm thinking i'm trying to think of. in contempt let him go in contempt thank you caleb okay robbie continue your themes mm-hmm. what else you got robbie all right beyond those uh we've already just touched on most of it but i was just gonna go or i just touched on the worship but also the greed and envy i brought it up earlier about how eli was really about envy but a lot of upton sinclair's works were based on a commentary on capitalism and how greed and the American way when, when taken hypocritically can lead to everyone's downfall, including those on top. Uh, you see that in the jungle, you see that in some of his other works, but here Daniel represents the American dream of like, he started at the bottom and he worked his way up, but how did he do that? on the accidents and the deaths and the blood of others. There was blood, even though we didn't really just see it. It was all the deaths and accidents that occurred beneath him that he capitalized on, starting with his own leg when the dynamite blows up and he falls and he has to drag himself out because that's the first trial that he really goes through. But instead of sticking with like, you know, trying to grow and trying to help the other people, he deals underhanded whenever he can and uh, he doesn't operate exactly above board because he wants that money. 
So he just, he just has that overwhelming sense of greed. Eli, we've already gone over his envy for power, his covetedness. He wants to have everything. And he takes over the, the issue of faith at the time with people that were like perhaps being con men, selling snake oils or selling miracles, uh, which was also really common back in the 20s. And especially um, a little bit later into the 30s with the Great Depression door-to-door people doing that type of thing taking advantage of others became quite common which will be imminent by the end of this movie which at the end of this movie is right before the stock market crash of of 29 right it crashed because eli died and he didn't have a milkshake (laughs) a little economy (laughs) lesson for all of you at home (laughs) it really wasn't because everyone sold their stocks out of uh farmer refute and stuff god no yeah that's all i got greg so the thing about the milkshake is that might have actually been a real quote. It's it's a little bit of legend from uh, an oil man named Edward Duhini during a 1924 court case about the teapot dome scandal. Somebody was talking basically because they were selling oil cheap without doing competitive pricing. And they were basically saying, if I have a milkshake and you have a milkshake and I have a long straw, you basically did the same thing. So as legend has it, that's where it came from. Dang. I don't know if that makes the, the line even more iconic or less. <laughs> Probably more. What's it more? Hmm. It fit really well for the scene. I just so. know that Paul Thomas Anderson was like, this is such a ridiculous thing to say. Why did you bring up milkshakes suddenly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm writing that in. That's great. I have a pseudo Robbie theme if we would like to talk about it. Right. Please. Yeah. And it'll probably just be one of those themes where everyone goes, oh, yeah, that, that's a thing. It's not a theme. A so, motif as it were? Yeah. I've got a, a motif. So here's the thing that I noticed about Daniel is he's always getting woken up suddenly. I know. <laughs> Nick's giving me a dirty look already. But so like we have the scene right before we have the scene where they set up the Derek and someone dies and Fletcher goes to wake up Daniel like Daniel, Daniel, wake up. And then we have the scene where I don't know if Daniel is sleeping. No, he's not sleeping when the Derek explodes. Goodness, I should have collected more evidence. But there's the, <laughs> there's the scene where Bandy fires a shot from his rifle to wake up Daniel. And there's the scene where Daniel is woken up suddenly by the fire that's, that's in his house that's burning Henry. And there's the scene where... There's one more scene where he's being woken up by a servant, I believe. It's got to be. At the very end in the... yeah. When Eli comes to visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it is. And in the very beginning, there's one too. When he falls down, he passes out because he hits the ground and he wakes up and his leg's broken. Mm-hmm. That's true. With the, uh, <gasps> yep. Yeah. So he, he's always waking up. And that's is there, there a motif that keeps happening. Yeah. Yeah. There, so that, that's like five or six times. Is, is there I do any- notice a lot of those are him having passed out on the floor. Mm-hmm. Generally from drinking and him being woken up like, hey, the world's still happening. Come deal with this. Yeah. It's an interesting way of doing trials, I guess. Like each one was a trial that he must overcome when he wakes up being shot. Mm -hmm. That's the goal of a businessman is to just set up your business and then nothing goes wrong so you can go to sleep and then you just get problems. And then then you go back to sleep and like, problems. Totally. I like how he justifies that when he's talking to Eli, because Eli is like, some of your men have been seen drinking and they're sending and whatnot. And he's like, these guys work 16 hours a day. They need their rest. 
Sometimes I need to have a little drink to go to sleep. You need to leave my bed alone. Yeah, and that's like such a part that's brushed over because they're arguing and talking over each other. But I think that is definitely like a, it's one of the cornerstones that their initial uh, headbutting stands on. It's just stuck with me that like Eli is very convinced that the men are careless because they're drinking. And then, you know, Daniel isn't exactly a teetotaler. But then again, at the very end, it's Eli who makes a drink for himself, several as a matter of fact, and Daniel has nothing. Hmm. Except for his giant bottle of... Yeah. <laughs> I was I mean, going to say, he chug a... the vodka. Yeah, but he doesn't make... He doesn't yeah, I think he just Eli. doesn't... Ex- he will not accept mm-hmm. it from Eli. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that when Eli comes to Daniel and says, I would like to say a blessing over the new Derek when you open it up when everyone's there, Daniel says the blessing and basically spits in Eli's face by doing the blessing without him and not calling him up. Mm-hmm. And then the next scene is someone gets hit in the head and dies in the pit. And right after that, the Derek hits a gas pocket and the oil starts shooting out. So it's kind of like him getting his spiritual comeuppance. Like he didn't let the preacher bless it. So bad things start to happen. Yeah. And it sort of makes you think that that's what the movie is going to be about. That, like, he keeps trying to set up his business, but he didn't let Eli bless the weld, so it's all going to go down. But I think that scene serves as the parallel to Daniel's scene with Paul, where Daniel says, uh, and if I find no oil there, I'm going to come and find you and take more than my money back. I think it's that scene for Eli, because he repeatedly says that, you know, you're going to say my name, and then I will bless the oil. And so it gives you everything you need to know about Eli that, well, he's conceited and he's full of himself and he's pretty much using his Exactly. He wants, the, he wants that to, notoriety. Yeah. And that's Daniel's first slight against him because before it's very much like, yes, I will be agreeable. Even though it's backhanded agreeable, I will still like, yes, that'll be fine. You can, yes, you can come do that. Sure. But this mm-hmm. is the first outright slap to the face as it were yeah and what does he do he has mary come up and like say a few words or something he basically gives the introduction because he's like i want you to say the son of the land and you will say my name and i will come up and he says that about mary he's like i will this is mary the daughter of the land and <laughs> i give her a blessing or whatever you know it's <laughs> mm-hmm. talk about like backhanded though right after that scene when he's sitting eating food in his little like celebration party he has Mary come up to him and he talks like to Mary, like, Oh, like the gift I gave you of bread and food, unlike your father. And then he turns and the camera like moves a little bit. And the dad's sitting there like looking at what he's doing. (laughs) Well, I mean, we kind of knew that was going to happen because HW had had told him was like, Hey dad, if she doesn't pray, they beat her. And why does that happen? And his dad was like, Hmm. Okay. And so then you know, he buys her this dress and does this. And this was him kind of being like, Hey, Mary, you like how I got you stuff and did stuff. Okay, good. Because she was, he was definitely putting down the dad. That was him. I think following through with what he told HW he would do. If we go back to our earlier discussion about how he actually does love HW above all, because HW Mm -hmm. just kind of casually mentions, Oh, this, this girl will get beaten. And he's like, that's the younger one. Right. And it's like, yeah, I've seen you two hanging out. So he's like, I'm going to buy her a new dress. I'm going to make sure that she doesn't get beaten. I'm going to take care of this girl so that HW can play and be free. And my son will be happy. 
Mm-hmm. Or business partner, as it were. Yeah, my, my business partner, I mean, HW will be happy. <laughs> yes. Fellas, I would like to talk a little bit more about the fire in the oil derrick, because that part's pretty rad. Mm-hmm. I got a little bit of information about it. Oh, please. Uh, behind the scenes stuff. So when asked about what was used for the oil, it was quoted as saying, it's the stuff they put in chocolate milkshakes at McDonald's. So it's it's kind of a combination of food grade, methyl cellulose, caramel coloring, and various dyes. That's what was used to get that nice consistency. And it's in various consistencies depending on if it needs to be in the puddles or coming out of the geyser or anything. Or on someone's face. Or, right. Yeah, exactly. And it had to be easily washed out of clothes because actors are just wearing their stuff and it had to be washed off of actors and it had to be safe. But when they were doing the fire, there was a environmental regulation that any fuel source could not hit the ground so they had to make sure anything that got shot up had to be burned away and that was a combination of petroleum products diesel fuel and gasoline and they had this pump that would shoot that up and it had four igniters to make sure it ignited and they kept being like okay we gotta we're gonna do this scene but we're gonna keep pushing it back because we want to make sure we have everything with this dare because we only have the one and eventually they're like you know what screw it let's burn it and let's just shoot it and they were like, oh, well, maybe we'll shoot the day parts and then we'll put it out and we'll shoot the next day. We'll shoot the night stuff. And they're like, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to put it out. Let's just let's just set it up and go. Oh. So they set it up, lit it on fire, had a bunch of different cameras going and just tried to get as much as they could. Which wow. is why it kind of cuts from That's like awesome. daytime to nighttime. And it's like, is it dusk? Is it night? It doesn't really matter because you see the passage <laughs> of time as it took a long time for them to deal with this fire. Now it makes all the sense in the world that this was shot in Texas. I don't know if you could shoot something that hardcore in that way any other place. <laughs> you know, stateside. You could, but you gotta, like I said, they had to make sure that nothing hit the ground that was toxic and everything. And, uh, you know, they ruined No Country for Old Men's shots, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, take that. Your slow murder movie. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'm actually looking at the trivia now for a little fun fact. And uh, every Wednesday while editing, the editing team would only eat steak and straight vodka in order to stay in the mind of Daniel Plainsworth, which I thought was amazing. Plain view. view. Not worth. Plain view. I'm no longer on that page. (laughs) Yeah, there was... Anyway. So there's a little fun factoid that I discovered through IMDb's trivia page. But one thing in this movie, the biggest thing that bothered me was how long the intro sequence was, which is why I thought it was a horror movie. There was no talking for 14 minutes straight besides one person. 14 and a half minutes. I wrote that down. Yeah. (laughs) And it was just, holy crap, that took forever. But it was like interesting because the sound design, the amazing cinematography during it but it set the movie up for me in such a different direction from what it took yeah and it's such a it's just good visual storytelling that you don't really need the dialogue until he's at the town gathered everybody and he's giving a speech about you know me i'm an oil man and i've gathered you here and our town is going to thrive become a community this is my partner i mean son hw and <laughs> <laughs> Um, anybody else got anything else they want to talk about? Uh, Mary and HW are very cute. I wanted more like, of them. Please. Of HW that speaking was Mary's sign language. That was cute when the 
sign language instructor came back with HW and they're conversing and Mary's just kind of like following along to pick Mm -hmm. up on it. That's like, it stands out because there's not a whole lot of wholesome energy in this movie. But then when it hits two hours and 15 minutes in, you feel it so much more like, wow, there's goodness in the world. In that beautiful marriage scene where they're giving their vows in sign language. No gods, no kings, no greed. Only cuteness. Kawaii. <laughs> Anybody else? I also really like the uh, the oil Derek scene. Just throwing it out there. It's, uh, <laughs> well, the the movie, as I think we've sort of just bumped into it, it takes a lot of twists, but not like in sort of story, in just in how you think it's going to play out. Like you think like, oh, this is going to be a, a rags to riches story with the intro because we see him as just a lone miner. And like, oh, well, nope. Just a couple of minutes later, he's making $5,000 a week, which I looked up with a in, inflation calendar, or calendar, with an inflation calculator, <laughs> and that's $130,000 a week. So, oh, my. Yeah, that's some weak wow. numbers that are up there, Yeah, that's, that's some good scratch. <laughs> uh, and then, like, you know, you think that, well, he sets up his Derek, but he doesn't let Eli bless it, so now his whole company is going to be in turmoil but uh nope that's not the case because he just flourishes and eli disappears and then you think that it's going to be a little bit more about henry and we get to the the bottom of uh how daniel feels about the world then henry Henry dies so there's just a lot of turns that it takes and how you think it's going to play out and you really don't know like what's going to happen next in just a way that it feels fresh and then it just sort of ends really abruptly, but in a satisfying way. I do like that it ends with, I'm finished. Yeah. <laughs> just like, Jesus. It's like, yeah, that's the movie. You are finished. Correct. Mm-hmm. Fellas, would you recommend this movie and under what circumstances? Robbie. I would definitely recommend this movie. I think uh, in almost all circumstances, because it does so great as being a drama that doesn't fall into a lot of the narrative traps because it kind of genre shifts a lot, but it also has strong performances. The sound design is amazing and it has just the right amount of uncomfortable creep factor without dipping into horror that it would be good for someone who doesn't even like horror movies. I think I'd recommend this. It lost my attention a couple times just because it's long and they have some shots that are just sort of like drawn out. But overall, like it's a great story. So I think I would recommend it if people are into cinema and love like the sound design and like cinematography aspects of it. But as far as overall story goes, maybe not. So I'm like 50-50 depending on who. I don't know. (laughs) It's a weird movie. You have to see how they're feeling before you recommend it. Yeah, I would recommend this movie. It's a good one for movie lovers, for people who like, you know, deconstructing a script. Like, I think if it's possible, I would just like to read this script because I think that there is a lot that you could unpack with character motivation and backstory and what they want and how they go about getting it. There's a lot that you could dig into there. And yeah, all the reasons we said before, some great performance, some really good camera work a haunting and eerie score and some iconic moments delivered by uh, Mr. Day-Lewis. I would also recommend this movie. It is beautiful. It is fantastic to watch. I felt that it moved. It's two and a half hours long, but you don't really get sick of it. 
some fantastic acting by Daniel Day-Lewis. That's why he won the Oscar. It's just a great movie overall. That was our conversation on There Will Be Blood. Next week, we have Nick's movie. Nick, what are we watching next week? We're going to be watching Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Woot! Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen this movie. I don't know what to expect. Uh, It'll be oh, a good time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, Robbie, don't don't spread your bad vibes. I want to enjoy this one. Yeah, Robbie. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep quiet about it. We'll see how much you Did enjoy we... it. <laughs> yeah, we will. You know, you never know. This could become my new favorite movie. I'm gonna have to True. hide my eyes. Everyone, please feel free to watch that movie and join us next week when we talk about it. Please follow us on social media. We are Four Film Fellas, F O U R Film Fellas, on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Bye, Bye. 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 everyone. Bye.